My name is Joel Gein. I'm one of the teaching elders here at Aletheia. As Manny mentioned, we rotate through teachers, so you'll see different people here at different times. We go section by section, verse by verse, and sometimes chapter by chapter through Scripture. And this morning, we are continuing our journey in Genesis. So open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15, which is the, our subject text for this morning. I'm going to read it aloud, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into the message. Um, some people have asked, I often read and teach from the ESV, uh, if you're trying to match um, versions. There can be a little difference between them sometimes, but for the most part, the best version is the one that you read. Okay, Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark, and it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you, the same God who had this conversation with Abram so long ago, the same God who is faithful to his covenants, the same covenant God under which we approach you, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Lord, we, uh, we're here as we were talking about in the prayer room this morning. We're here not just because we like seeing each other, but because we believe that there is value and corporately acknowledging you, worshiping you, consciously seeking you together in your word and in each other and in song and in spirit and in truth. So, Lord, meet us where we are today and show us your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. R.C. Sproul, the, the legendary preacher, who has a great sermon on this passage, by the way, said that uh, his life verse is in this passage. And that's a funny thing. He laughed about it, and I laugh about it. Sometimes people ask me what my life verse is. I don't really know what that is or what that's supposed to be, to, just to have a verse for life. I, there's a lot of good verses in here, and they apply differently at different times of life. But it always makes me remember, um, many people have a, a life verse. That, there's a famous one in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge Him, and He'll direct your paths. And I, I cannot think of life verses without laughing. My, uh, my older sister, who is um, a wonderful human being, 
many years ago was on a, a classical music fellowship studying in London. And for reasons that don't matter, she had decided to stop that, be done with the music, be done with the music career, and come back to the US. And so she wrote this long email to the whole family saying, look, some things have happened. This isn't what I'm going to pursue for the rest of my life. I've made some choices. I know some of you may be disappointed, but I'm coming back to the US. And she ended it, you know, love melody, and then she meant to put her, what she might call life verse, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. But in her um, anxiety and confusion and the life change, she flipped it around and put Proverbs 5, 3. And Proverbs 5, 3 says, um, and the words of a seductress drip from her lips like honey. <laughs> And so the whole family's like, what is she trying to tell us? <laughs> and it took her a while to realize everybody, you know, the, the, the grandmas, the aunts, and the uncles. So if you're going to have a life verse, at least make sure you get the reference correct, because you never know, because there are some tricky verses that, um, and we'll have Brian preach those later. So, okay, so this, this passage in uh, Genesis 15, we're just going to go through the passage. This is one of the critical, critical passages in Scripture. This, this is the Abrahamic covenant. It's, we had the Noahic covenant, but that was a covenant that God made with all of creation. This covenant He's making specifically with Abram. Abram, soon to be Abram. So what's happened, the, the general narrative, we had creation, we had the different falls, we had the fall of man, the fall of the nations, we had uh, the, the flood uh, we had Babel after the flood. We had God disperse the nations and say, I'm going to draw out a nation for myself. And the next thing that happens is he calls Abram and he says, leave your land. And Abram says, where am I going? And God says, I'll tell you later. And so Abram obeys him. And we know from scripture that Abram came from a pretty pagan area. They were, it was a, it was, he came from a family line that the Bible actually says worshiped the moon because people worshipped heavenly bodies in those days. But Abram realized that this, this Yahweh that he's talking to, this Jehovah, is the God that he wants to serve and obey. And he's one of the few who actually talks about him by name. Others refer to, if you look back at the Melchizedek blessing, Melchizedek um, says, uh, calls God God Most High. Abraham calls him Yahweh God Most High, or Jehovah God Most High. So he puts a, a personal name on God. And I just thought that was an interesting observation. What's happened before this is Abram and his nephew Lot have left their homeland together, and they have journeyed together to this region, and they both are very wealthy men with a lot of flocks and herds. And so they had to decide, look, we can't all be in the same place. We overwhelm the land if we're in the same place. So Abram said, Lot, you pick. Wherever you go, I'll go the other direction. We're still friends. We just have to spread out a little bit. And Lot went down into a, a beautiful valley, and he was living near what was then Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were um, different. At the time, you had these different tribal cities, and these cities were ruled by kings. And I liked you know, Manny when he talked about this. It was the analogy he uses, this was kind of a, a, a mafia system where different families ran different things and paid tribute. And we had, this, um, we had this one family that was very powerful, and it was King Chedorlaomer of Elam. So you get these five kings that are descendants of Ham oppressing these three kings that are descendants of Shem. And Lot gets caught up in the middle of this because the descendants of Shem revolt against the descendants of Ham, and they try to... Uh, say, we're not paying you tribute anymore, we're not paying you taxes anymore. Uh, Keter Loomer says, yeah, we'll see, and he shows up with his five kings, and he takes everything. And Lot, who's just caught in the crossfire, gets taken too. So he's, he's swept away, all of his possessions are taken, and one person escapes and runs to Abram, who I don't know how, however many miles away, um, maybe 10 miles away, something like that, runs to Abram and says, hey, bad news, Lot and his entire family and all of his possessions, also these other three kings and their families and their possessions have all been captured by Keterlomar and his thugs. Abram talks to his neighbors and just from his own household, and we don't know however many people went with them, rallies a few hundred guys. They go after them in the night and they actually defeat these five kings and they wind up freeing Lot and the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and, these, and so they, they break up the whole, the whole mess, and then they're heading back. On their way heading back, they run into the mysterious figure of Melchizedek, which we talked about last week. 
and Abram pays tribute to Melchizedek. We don't know exactly why, but Hebrews goes into great detail around that. And um, the thing that happens there is the king of Sodom comes to Abram and essentially offers an alliance and says, look, you keep a bunch of this stuff, and we're going to be we're, you know, we'll, what that would have been is when they're, they're basically saying we're splitting possessions because we're aligned now. And that would have been a, a good thing for Abram because then he would have people in the area that were on his side where they had thrown their lot in together, so to speak. But Abram does this very strange thing. He says, no. He says, I don't want it. He rejects this alliance with the king of Sodom and doesn't take any of the loot. Says, hey, make sure my men are taken care of. I'm going back home. And he goes back home, and you can imagine he's probably sitting there at home going, I hope I don't regret this because I just angered and defeated five savage kings who were able to take out this whole valley, and I made no alliances, and I insulted the king of Sodom, or I, I kind of dishonored him by rejecting his offer of a gift. What's going to happen to me? What if these kings come after me? What if other kings come after me? Who am I? I'm just some guy. I don't even own this land. I have, I'm wealthy, but I don't even belong here. I'm basically a guest in this land. And as long as I am trying to keep my head down and play nicely and be nice to other people, it's going well, but I just got myself caught up in a small war. So that's where we are when we get to the first verse of chapter 15, where it says, after these things, that's everything that's just happened. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And he said, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So what he's saying is, I'm your shield. I'm the one who will provide you the reward. You rejected the shielding and the reward of the world. And we know it doesn't go well for Sodom and Gomorrah. That's coming up shortly. Because they were extremely wicked cities. We'll preach on that later. I want to start with a few things. So, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. We, that's one of those phrases, the word of the Lord came to. It's one of those phrases that we just sort of gloss over in Scripture and say, oh, yes, that happens sometimes. We don't know what that is. It's, is it, maybe it's just a voice that somebody hears. And Scripture uses that phrase a lot, but it, it kind of says some strange things. Because in one sense, we think of the word as something you hear. But in another sense, the word of the Lord brought Abram outside, other times we see the word of the Lord having meals. So I think there's more to it than we realize. I looked up just for fun. How many people in Scripture does it say the word of the Lord came to? So it came to Abram. This is the first time, by the way, that phrase shows up in Scripture, the word of the Lord. It shows up the first and second times in this passage. does not show up again until the story of Samuel. The, word of the, the next person the word of the Lord comes to is Samuel, and then Nathan, and then Gad, and then Solomon, and then Jehu, who's like the bad boy of the Old Testament. Then Elijah, Isaiah, Shimei, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, and Zechariah. So all those minor prophets. What's really interesting is that means there's a lot of people that it never says the word of the Lord came to. There's something specific about that, and that's why they use that phrase. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't say uh, David, for example. It doesn't say the word of the Lord came to him. But David writes a lot about the word of the Lord, and he actually talks about the word of the Lord in his Psalms, and he talks about the word of the Lord creating the world, and the word of the Lord being responsible for creation, the word of the Lord driving out enemies. It's, it's very interesting. There's one person where the word of the Lord has a, a unique relationship, and that's Joseph, which we'll get to later in Genesis, because we're told we're, uh, in Psalms, I think it's Psalm 105, thereabouts, that we're told that the word of the Lord tested Joseph. And I couldn't find anybody else where it said the word of the Lord tested somebody. But we're told by David the word of the Lord tested Joseph. So the word of the Lord comes to Abram and says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. This is not the first time Abram has had a conversation with God. About 20 years prior, he had had the conversation. And if you go back to, um, it should be right around chapter 12, the call of Abram. Now, the Lord said to Abram, that's not the same thing as saying the word of the Lord came to Abram. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. So he's not even telling him where he's going. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. 
so you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Pretty cool blessing, right? That's not the covenant. That's a promise that God makes, and he just tells Abram, hey, follow me. I've got good stuff in mind for you. Abram was about 75 years old when that happened. Fast forward 20 years, and that's where we are today. And he's like, okay, thanks for shielding me. Thanks for the reward. I have everything I need, but you may recall this promise you made to me about turning me into a great nation, and it's not happening, and I'm getting pretty old. So Abram is 95-ish at this point. So that's why Abram responds in verse 2. He says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Uh, We don't know anything about Eliezer of Damascus. I've questioned, and I don't have a great answer, why is it not Lot? Wouldn't Lot be his closest relative? I don't know. Maybe they, uh, we don't know what agreements were here, but he says, Eliezer of Damascus is the heir of my house, somebody who's not even from here. Damascus at the time was a great trading city. Some people have postulated, and there was actually a lot of commentary around this, that saying Eliezer of Damascus is like saying Charles Schwab. It's like saying, I don't have anything but Charles Schwab. I don't have anything, I don't have any, my heir's T. Rowe Price, or whatever you want to say, right? And, and it, it could be, but I don't think that's what it's saying here because they actually say, this man in your house. So I don't think he's just saying, I'm rich and the bank gets everything. I think what he's saying is, I have, the, you know, I have an agreement somewhere. There was some agreement somehow that made this guy the next closest living relative. Maybe for the last 20 years, that's been causing Abram anxiety. But Eliezer of Damascus missed out on a pretty great inheritance. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Now, you would think, normally, if you were having this kind of conversation with somebody, then you would expect that they might explain to you what's going on. Be like, hold on, no, I know it seems that way, but let me tell you what I'm doing. And that's not what God does. God does a really interesting thing when we ask him questions. And you see this in Scripture, you see this in the entire book of Job. God gets hammered and hammered and hammered with questions. He gives no answers. He responds by saying, let me tell you who I am. And just restating the truth. He says, this is what I said, and this is who I am. And that's exactly what happens here. The the word of the Lord came to him. Verse 4, it's the second time it says the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then he brings him outside and says, look at the stars. This, I, I always remember this, I spent some time in a remote part of Africa where there wasn't a lot of light. And I was there with a business partner of mine. And uh, we went outside one night and we were looking at the stars. And I grew up, you know, around here and out in Black Forest where it was dark. And this guy grew up more in cities. And he literally couldn't believe what he was seeing when he looked at the sky. Because you could see the Milky Way. You could see the proper Milky Way and it looked like it was splashed across. He said, hey, look, you can see the Milky Way. He's like, no, that can't be. He's like, that's got to be a cloud. Like, no, this is what the stars look like. You've just never really seen them before. And he wouldn't believe me until we were seeing it night after night. And then he's like, I guess you actually could see the Milky Way. So, so you, you can imagine Abram's view is probably similar to that. Extremely uh, uh, vivid night sky with a gazillion stars. And there's f- several times in Scripture where the offspring of Abram are compared to the stars of the sky, the dust of the earth, whatever. So the word of the Lord brings him outside. It's an interesting phrase. It says, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he says, look up toward heaven, the number of the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Then we get to this really, really, really important verse. Uh, Abraham 15, or I'm sorry, Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham, or says, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. It means Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to Abraham as righteousness. That verse is extremely important. It's used in the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, and the book of James to show that belief is the pivot point of righteousness, that it's not behavior. If you've been coming to Aletheia a long time, we had some sermons way back in the day that talked about belief before behavior. And that is the scriptural message. Abram hasn't done anything righteous at this point. Now, when you fast forward to the New Testament, what Jesus is dealing with and what Paul deals with in the book of Romans is this population of Jewish people who refer to themselves as the circumcision because they believe circumcision was, this, was righteousness. They said Abram was righteous, he was circumcised, we're circumcised, therefore we're righteous. That was their logic flow. 
Paul, in Romans chapter 4, follows through that and says, no, circumcision wasn't a thing yet. Now, the, the Pharisees stated in their writings, the Talmud and the Mishnah, that Abram actually followed the law perfectly. The law didn't come until 600 years after Abram. They said, well, just kind of intuitively, he was just this embodiment of the law. That's why he was so righteous. The Scripture doesn't say anything about that. doesn't say anything like that. He came from a pagan family. He was trying to figure things out, and he made a lot of mistakes. He lied about his wife like twice in a row, he, and, he, and he had children with people who weren't his wife, and his wife dominated him in a lot of ways, and it was a, he was a problematic guy. But he believed the Lord. And this is amazing because God told him 20 years ago, you're going to have kids. 20 years later, he's 95 now. Probably not decrepit. He did just fight a, a battle and won. But he knows he's old. He knows he's on a ticking clock. And God says, no, really, you're going to have a lot of offspring. And that's, it would have been easy for Abram to be like, look, that's what you said 20 years ago. There's no babies. Like, what are we doing here? I've I just explained to you, this guy's my heir. I have no heir. I'm 95 years old. My wife's not a lot younger than I am. What's going on? But he doesn't say that. It says he believed him. The Hebrew word for belief is an active word, and what it means is to have certainty that it will bear your weight. So he, you can lean completely on what you believe. Abram, when it says he believed God, and Paul details this in Romans chapter 4, says he had a certainty that what God was telling him was true. Now, what that means, now none of us has perfect certainty of anything. You can always argue with everything. I mean, sometimes we, you can argue with, you know, what, what are we doing here? And how do I know that I exist? You know, people, there's all these philosophical uncertainties. But the point of certainty is you act in accord with the belief of what you say is true. So Abram said, okay, God, I am going to continue as in total certainty of what you're telling me is true. That's an amazing thing. Belief, and we'll come back to this, but belief is really important in Scripture. So that was counted to him as righteousness. Then the Lord does this interesting thing. He restates who he is. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So there's a twofold promise here. One is you're going to be a great nation. Two is this is going to be your land. Now remember, this is the story of Abram's life to this point. Come out of your land. Okay, where are we going? I'll tell you later. You're going to be a great nation. Okay, where are the kids? I'll show you later. You're going to possess this land. Okay, I don't own any land. Well, I'll tell you later. That's, that's his life up to this point. That's what's been going on. Because Abram, in his own lifetime, the only land Abram actually owns is the cave near the Oaks of Mamre where he buries him, his wife and later is buried himself. He, when we have that transaction recorded, he buys it from the local king because he wants a place to bury his wife. That's the only land he actually owns in his entire life. Even being a very wealthy guy with flocks and herds and probably gold and silver and whatever else, the only actual property that's his, even though God shows him all this is going to belong to your, to your heirs, all this is going to belong to your offspring, your, this is going to be a great nation, they're going to be here and they're going to possess this land, all Abram gets is a place to be dead. And that's, that's the extent of his property when he passes. So the Lord says to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And Abram says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now this is a hard one because there are other places in Scripture where somebody asks God, how will I know? And God gets upset with them. That happens to Zechariah, who's in many ways an interesting parallel to Abram. They're both priests. They're both prophets. They both are old without a child. They both have a promised child coming. They both have a visitation from God, although in Zechariah's case, it was Gabriel specifically who came to him and said, hey, you're going to have a child. And Zechariah said, how am I to know? And Gabriel said, I'll tell you how. You can't speak until he's born. And it, and it said he was angry with him for not believing the word of the Lord. But Abram, we know, was already in belief, but somehow he still asks God, and I don't know exactly how that works, even though he believes God about the offspring thing, he says, God, how am I going to know about the land? How should I know? Then God says this interesting thing, and this is where this takes a hard left turn into an eerie place. He says, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. 
And Abram brought all these and cuts them in half and laid each half over against the other. It means laid, like basically one half here, one half there with a space between them. To us, we're going, what on earth? Like, what did these animals do? Why? And why did Abram cut the animals in half that God told him to bring? And, and what's happening? So this has taken a while because remember, Abram was out looking at the stars. So that was nighttime. This is probably morning because we know that night falls later on in this scene. So at some point early in the day, God has told him, go get these animals. It takes a while. I don't know how long it takes to cut a heifer in half, but without machines, I'm guessing it takes a while. And he lays them aside. And what you have here is this lining up of these pieces of animals, and it's like a bloody aisle. And the way we know this, go ahead and turn with me to Jeremiah 34. We know this from a lot of extra biblical stuff, but I'm just going to show it to you in Scripture since it's available here. Jeremiah 34. The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah 34 in verse 8. Remember, there's that phrase, the word of the Lord. And he says, King Zedekiah made a covenant with all the people of Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them. Now, this is really interesting. It's a covenant to be out of slavery. We're going to see God makes a covenant with Abram and tells him your people are going to be in slavery. But what happens in Jeremiah's time is the high-ranking Jewish people are enslaving the low-ranking Jewish people. There's a huge theme in Scripture about being released from slavery. And King Zedekiah had made a covenant with the people and said, okay, Jews are no longer going to enslave Jews. We're going to release everybody. And they made a covenant, and they made it exactly the same way that Abram makes the, or that God makes the covenant with Abram. So it says they made the covenant. Uh, in verse 8, King Zedekiah made the covenant that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female. Skip down to verse 11. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free and brought them back into subjection as slaves. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers. He's referring back to the Abrahamic covenant. He says, I made a covenant. You guys were doing wrong because I brought you out of slavery. You've re-enslaved each other. I asked you to stop. You made a covenant with me that you would stop. So you did, go down to verse 15. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty each to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. You came to the temple, you made a covenant. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves. Skip down to the second half of verse 17. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me I will make them like the calf that they cut into and passed between its parts. All the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf, down in verse 20, their dead bodies shall be the food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. So what is this? We get the same covenant picture. He said, you guys made a covenant, and we'll, we won't spend any more time in Jeremiah 34. He said, you made a covenant, you cut the animals in half, you passed between the parts. Now the symbolism there, and we see this through other ancient writings, and it's found archaeologically. You see um, uh, the kings in Susa and other places doing this exact same thing. They would symbolically take something dead and say, this is my covenant. Each of us is accepting this covenant. And if we break the covenant, may I be like this dead animal. And they did this publicly. So when we make covenants, and uh, you know, I work a lot in legal spaces, and there's a lot of contracts and documents, the signature's the thing. You know, you put the signature on it, when the, when the documents are executed, they're done. And if you're going to change anything about it, you're held to account for the documents, and the symbol of that is the signature. And that's an important, you have these signing events where people come together, and, and this is, we're putting the signature on there. That's the covenant. They had a very, very uh, effective way of making covenants where they said, no, no, we're going to actually cut animals in half. Everybody's going to watch. You're going to pass through together, and typically what would happen is the king would pass through before the, the lower people, and each person would pass through and recite their part of the bargain. They would say, this is what I'm going to do, and then the next guy would say, okay, and this is what I'm going to do. If any of us breaks this, then may we be symbolically like what has happened here. It was a pledge to death. They even did this in marriage ceremonies. I'm doing a marriage ceremony next weekend. I offered to do this, and they said no. Um, <laughs> 
And, and frequently, there would be a symbol of the covenant that would be passed on later, and that's exactly what happens in Genesis. The symbol of the covenant is circumcision. There's something really important about the genetic line, the possession of God, the family that he's raising up. And so he has a symbol tied directly to that. So, so when God says to Abram, when Abram says, how am I going to know that this is going to be my land and it's going to belong to my offspring? Then God says, go get the animals. And Abram knows exactly what he's doing. He goes and he gets the animals. He goes, all right, I guess we're doing a covenant. Cool. I get to make a covenant with God. And he cuts them in half and he lays them out. And then he waits. And it's hot. And the vultures start coming, and he spends probably the better part of the day chasing the birds away. Like, all right, anytime now, God, <laughs> here I am. It's, it's as bloody and smelly, and there's flies, and I've got this half and this half and this half and this half, and he's kind of waiting. Then what happens? Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. This, this phrasing in here is really, really fascinating. This word darkness, this is the first time that it's ever used in Scripture, and it's only used four more times in the whole Bible. It's not the word that you think of with darkness. It, when we think of, um, you know, uh, verses about darkness, they use a completely separate word. This is different. And then it puts another word in front of it that means horror. So that a, a literal translation of this would be a horror of darkness fell upon Abram. And it's a, it's a supernatural, powerful darkness. We talk, of, this is the darkness of, uh, it's actually used in Psalm 82. Let's turn there to Psalm 82. You, you know we've hit Psalm 82 a few times recently, where God is talking about the rebellious, the, the sons of God who rebelled against him, that council that rebelled against him. And he actually uses this description of darkness. It's one of only five times in Scripture where it's laid out. Psalm 82, verse 5, he's talking about these, uh, the gods that he's holding to judgment. He says, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness, and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. There's always something supernatural with this kind of darkness. That's something that is, that is horrible that human beings are not supposed to behold, and it sets Abram in this place of paralyzing fear and horror which is a strange thing to think about, that God's presence could come like that. But we see frequently in Scripture that when people are confronted with the Most High God, they frequently fall down in terror. Isn't that interesting? God, who is our comfort, our salvation, our rock, our redeemer, the one in whom we find every good thing, is also the most terrifying thing that you can imagine. So Abram falls into this deep sleep like a, a supernaturally deep sleep. He's basically put down, and then this dreadful darkness settles on him. And I don't know if it's the same darkness. It's the same darkness that's in Psalm 139 where he says, um, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. And then goes on from there. It's that darkness. So there's something about it that is this, this thing that only God can overcome because the other gods are entrapped in it. Our God, Yahweh, uh, David says about him, even this darkness will not be dark to you. It's like the daytime to you. So this is what Abram's got going on. He's got this darkness. And then the Lord says to Abram, as he's, so Abram's here, he's prostrate. You've got this bloody aisle. You've got horrible darkness. And then the Lord recites to him, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." I've, I've probably listened to seven or eight sermons on this and related passages. Everybody skips that verse. He's, God just throws in there, by the way, it's got to be 400 years, four generations of this, because the Amorites aren't done with their inequity. So it's going to take a while. What? <laughs> what? Hey, everyone's like, the Amorites are my problem now? So who are the Amorites? We should, we should talk about that. So, because this is what God is reciting as he's, a, as he's confronting 
this bloody covenant isle, he's telling Abram, the land will be yours. It will belong to your offspring. But first they're going to be enslaved. Then they're going to be drawn out of that nation with great possessions. And they'll return here after a certain number of generations because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So when do we hear about the Amorites? Well, the Amorites, it actually... um, says in the very last verse of this chapter, the Amorites were one of the nations that Israel drove out when they got to the promised land. And who was the king of the Amorites? Og of Bashan. And what do we know about Og of Bashan? We can uh, go there specifically. Let's go to um, Deuteronomy chapter 3. This is called the defeat of the king of Og, or of King Og. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 11. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits is its length and four cubits is its breadth, according to the common cubit. Well, who are the Rephaim? The Rephaim are referred to as supernatural abominations. They're offspring of these Nephilim creatures that we read about in Genesis chapter 6. And they were directly manifested in the nation of the Amorites. And a lot of times they were manifested as giants. And the reason it tells us Og's bed measurement is because his bed was like 13 or 14 feet long. It doesn't say how long he is, but he was huge. And it says his bed was actually kept on display. And Moses here in Deuteronomy says, you can go see it if you want to go see it. So that's, so whatever the iniquity of the Amorites is, it's directly tied to the Rephaim, to the fall that we read about in uh, Genesis chapter 6. And God says, I'm waiting for that to complete. Then your people can have the land. And sure enough, when the people cross into the land, the first nations they're driving out are the Rephaim and the Amorites. So, That's that reference. Then this thing happens. We'll go back to Genesis 15. Something happens in verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, different word for dark there, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces. Who didn't pass between the pieces? Abram never passed between the pieces. God passes between the pieces on his own behalf and then passes between on Abram's behalf. You have two manifestations of God here. And these these phrases, by the way, are extremely weird. People have done tremendous amounts of research on what is the smoking fire pot? We don't know. They call it a fire. We don't know. Sometimes that word is translated as furnace, but it's some large thing. That word smoke, again, not your typical word for smoke. It's the smoke that's used to describe when God is um, on, on uh, Mount Sinai, when it says it's, it's shrouded in smoke, or when his presence is in the tabernacle, and it says it's shrouded in mist. That's the word. So you get this furnace like thing trailing this supernatural mist, followed by what they translate here as a fire torch or a t- flaming torch, but really the, the more literal translation is a lightning, like a frozen lightning. It's the same phrase that's used to describe the eyes of Jesus when he manifests in person. Followed by this frozen flashing light, there's some very supernatural, extraterrestrial, non-human thing happening here, and there's two of them, and they pass through the aisle, and Abram never does. And what they're symbolically saying, it's, it's not symbolically, they're making a blood covenant. Remember, the definition of covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. God is making a covenant to Abram, and normally what the covenant would be is God would pass through and say, I'm going to keep my side. Abram would pass through and say, I'm going to keep my side. And whoever doesn't, this is what happens to you. But instead, God passes through and says, I'll keep my side, and then I'm going to pass through for you, Abram, and when you don't keep your side, then this is what's going to happen to me. That's why this is such an important part of Scripture, because this is the most clear expression of the gospel 
one, potentially the most clear expression of the gospel in all of Scripture. That was the verse that R.C. Sproul said is the most important verse in the Bible. When it says, and then, as it got dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Because that was God making an everlasting covenant. We can have the worship team coming up. That was God making an everlasting covenant with His nation, with His people, saying, I will keep my side, but I'm also accepting all the responsibility for your side of the covenant. This is why when Jesus shows up and they're having the Passover meal, perhaps the most sacred meal in all of uh, Jewish tradition, the, the meal remembering when they had been saved from the angel of death on the night before they left the slavery of Egypt, then partway through the meal, Jesus stops and he takes the bread and he breaks it in half and says, this is my body broken for you. He splits it in half, just like happens in the, uh, with the animals or the covenant. And then he says, and this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you. Because God had passed through on Abraham's behalf, had passed through the bloody aisle between the halves of the bodies and through the blood to hold and to accept the account of the covenant on our behalf. Jesus, in the middle of Passover, stops the meal, breaks the bread in half, says, my body, my blood, new covenant. Let's have our first uh, uh, song of worship together, and then I'll come back and lead us in taking communion. It's, it's easy to look at all this and say, wow, what a cool, profound story. Look at what God did for Abram. Look at the, the power of that covenant that he made. But it always brings us back to, so what? What does this have to do with me? Why are we sitting here with 3,000-something years later after these things happened? You guys can have a seat. I'll take a few minutes. Um, after these things happened, why are we sitting here reading about it, talking about it? What does this have to do with us, and what does it have to do with the rest of the Bible, and what's the point? Because you go to church expecting, like, look, I go to church because I'm, I'm trying to... Uh, I'm trying to make sure that I, I have some good things going for me. I'm trying to stay on God's good side, stay off of his bad side. I'm trying to make sure that if somebody says, is this a good person or a bad person? You say, well, I got this going for me. I go to church and I, I, I even sing the songs and, and uh, sometimes I go to a Bible study and I, I even read my Bible myself. And, uh, and that's, that's what God wants from me, right? And there's, and it's, it's hard. It's hard because we, it's, it's really tough to know what it is that God really wants from us, even putting yourself in Abram's shoes. I mean, the guy, and he had a charmed life in so many ways, but he, he lived a life of frustration and unknown in so many ways, and he was tested in these weird ways by God. And when God finally gives him the son, and he loves this son, he says, go, oh, good, you're only begotten son. Then God says, now go put him on an altar and kill him. And Abram goes, I've been doing what God says all along, so... So, and we'll get to that story. But he's using it to show and remind us of, the, of what God has done over the arc of human history. And it does apply to each and every one of us. So I'm going to show you in Scripture where it tells us that it applies. So if you go to Romans 4, you can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. This is Paul. If you haven't read Romans 4, then go read it sometime, especially after this story, because the, the whole thing is an exposition of this story. But if you go to the very end of it, I'll start around verse 21. Abram was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So what Paul is saying is that righteousness that Abram was credited is also credited to you if you believe God. And specifically, what are you supposed to believe? We're going to believe that God did what he said he would do. It says that he kept the covenant. He delivered himself up on our behalf for our, trans for our trespasses. And that's, that's great. Right? And this is, so you get Jesus going, look, we took, this is my body. I'm splitting it in half. This is my blood. I'm going to pour out for you. I am the new covenant. 
And Paul is telling us, you need to walk in that covenant. That's the belief. That's where righteousness comes from. Works come later. Works have nothing to do with your righteousness except that they're an expression of your belief. But there's the bigger question of, so what? What is he doing here? What's the point? What is God trying to accomplish in this, this weird story that he, to, to where he's making these, these self-sacrificial covenants that are re- going to require so much of him on behalf of these, these people that make no sense, you and me, where we have this image of God, but we walk in these bodies of dust, and, and we live in this progression towards decay, and we're, and we're frustrated by the sin that we see around us, and say, good, okay, Jesus, new covenant, great. Why? What am I doing here? What's the point? Turn with me a little bit to the right if you were in Romans and turn to the book of Titus. We've been to this passage, but it's worth revisiting because it just makes more and more and more sense the more we study Scripture. Titus chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. Again, appeared. That's, that's a physical thing that happens. Like the word of the Lord came to Abram and brought him outside. The grace of God has appeared. The grace of God is physically here, has physically been here, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Just like Abram had had to say no to the alliances that he was offered because they were in sin. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. So what are we hoping in? The reappearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. So that's the redemption part we just read about in in Romans. And to purify for himself a people of his own possession. Exactly what God was doing when he drew Abram out after the Tower of Babel story, where God said, all right, you people are now allocated to these gods. And we, in that Psalm 82 passage, we know that these gods are going to do a terrible job, and they're going to lead people to sin and corruption and turn them away from Yahweh instead of turning them towards Him as they were supposed to. But God says, but I'm going to draw out my own people, my own nation, and I'm going to bless everybody through this nation. So He draws out Abram, and He says, leave the land. I'm taking you out of this pagan culture, and I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my inheritance, and I'm going to be your, inher- your inheritance and we're going to make you into a great nation. We're going to use that nation to bless everybody. And Abraham says, how do I know this is going to happen? And God splits up the animals and says, I'm taking both sides of this bargain. I will do it, and when you fail, I'll take the punishment for it because you have to be able to meet the criteria, and you're never going to be able to do it on your own. So fast forward, through that genetic lineage, Jesus directly descended from that lineage. He's the fulfillment of the promise. And there he's sitting with his disciples on that Passover meal, splitting it in half, saying, this is my body, this is my blood, this is the covenant. This is the covenant for you. And then Paul tells us, remember that belief that Abram had? That's your belief if you want to be in that covenant. Because what's Jesus doing? He's paying for our inability to keep the covenant, and he's buying back from slavery a people of his own. And that's who we are. And our hope in Christ is exactly what that Titus passage said. He's coming back. And he's coming back in glory and in triumph. And we know from Scripture that we who are his people, who are under that covenant, and we're under it by belief, we're under that covenant, are caught up to him in his glory. And he says, these are my people. Now the kingdom starts. The kingdom's here, now you can see it. That's the story of Scripture. And if God hadn't passed through that bloody aisle on our behalf, it would have been a bust because none of us can keep the covenant. None of us lives up to a standard. None of us can do it. But he knew that, and that's why he didn't have Abram pass through. And he said, I'm passing through as king, and I'm passing through as vassal. I'm passing through as the high-ranking one who's in charge, and I'm passing through as the one who is obligated to the one who is in charge. That's the order and the way those covenants were done. I'm passing through as both. And so when when you don't live up to my standard, I will pay for it. And it costs him a great deal. And it's because he wants his people. And who are his people? Anybody who will believe. 
And it's hard to believe, isn't it? You look around the world, you go, it's hard to believe. The whole world laughs at you for believing. Well, I bet you Abram got laughed at a whole lot for talking about what a great nation he was going to be when he's 95 years old and doesn't have a kid. And he's been saying that for 20 years, by the way. We know he got laughed at because in the next section, when God tells him, hey, this kid's coming, Sarah laughs. And then they named the kid Laughter because everybody was laughing at him. Because it should have never, because it didn't make any sense. There was no reason to expect that that ever could be true. But the righteousness was that Abram could have the confidence saying, God said it, I believe it, and I will live accordingly. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 4. Let's pray together, and then let's take that communion. And when you take the communion, I want you to do this. When you take that bread, before you eat it, the bread that symbolizes Jesus' body, and communion is not just purely symbolic. There's more to it than that, but it's supposed to tangibly make us think of the body of the Word of the Lord. Break it in half, because that's what we did to Jesus. He didn't die for Himself. He died for us. He was broken for us. When He split that bread in half, He said, it's poured out for the sins of many. Break it in half and own your side of the responsibility because that's why we love Jesus, is because of what He did for us, what we were otherwise responsible for. And when you think about the blood, when He says, this is my blood poured out for sins, think about the blood of these animals, the bloody aisle that God walked down to say, you're not going to be in slavery forever. You're my people, and I'm coming to get you. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great promises. Lord, you have been so faithful to your covenant. You remember, Lord, we read in Psalms over and over, we forget, we forget, we forget, but you remember your covenant. And Lord, that's our only hope. So we lean on you and your covenant. We lean on it with everything we have because we don't have anything else to bring. And Lord, when you come back in glory, which we believe you will because you said you would, when you come back in glory, Lord, then we want to be your people. Not pointing at good stuff that we did. Not that you don't appreciate it, but that's not the point. Not saying, look, I went to church. Look, I did the things. Look, I even got baptized. That's not what you're looking for. You're saying, did I know you? Did you know me? Did you believe me? Did you believe what I said? Lord, help us with our unbelief and help us to look to your word and to your promises when we are tempted to doubt. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue to worship and take communion together. We have communion up here, up here. We have joyful giving in the back. We have people that will pray with, with you. I will. Other people in the room will. If you want to pray with one of our sisters, I think it's Viola over here today. She's happy to pray with you. Take this stuff to the Lord. This is serious, serious business. This is why we're here. This is the point of why God made us, is to see what we would do with this covenant. Let's worship together.